I recommend books in my book, actually. So exactly, <laughs> I just recommend the same one. Yeah, it's kind of easy. <laughs> it is when you've written a book. Yeah, and in terms of positioning, you want us to be a little bit more relaxed, lean forward. Whatever you like, it's going to come up to about your knee, so you're completely in the shot. It's just okay. up to the door, just behind me, so you've got plenty of wide angle. Okay, whatever you like. Okay, perfect, brilliant. Well, Sahil, thank you so much for joining me on the Healthy Entrepreneur Club podcast. It's great to see you. Great, great to see you again, Freddie. Wasn't it? The first time we met was actually on TV. Right? <laughs> what was our start scene? Well, I'd love to jump in first. We've just heard about your bio and the, the numerous things that you've done in your life, but I'd love to jump back to the start and where you came through on your entrepreneurial journey. What made you make, understand and want to jump into entrepreneurship? You know, I grew up in an entrepreneurial family, and since... Here's the funny thing. Actually, my dad was an employee, but the way that he was, he positioned himself in the company and the, and the way the company shared responsibilities, everyone on the outside thought he was actually a business partner. And he would always invite me to the office. He would always invite customers to the house for dinners. So I was always engaging with the business side of things. You know, that was my, I guess, now that I look back at it, that was my father's way of educating me on how to do businesses from a very early age. Why do you think he did that? Was that because there was, you know, he liked the social side of it? Or do you think he wanted to be an entrepreneur in his, in his life? Did he become an entrepreneur? You know, he eventually did. He when, did. The, when the company said that you've now reached the retirement age, yeah. he said, uh, nah, ah, nah, okay. that, that's not for me. In fact, retirement wasn't even in his dictionary. So that's when he actually started his entrepreneurial journey at the age of 54, I think it was. Really? Yeah. It's a lifelong Lifelong learning. Yeah. That's quite inspirational. Yeah. And that obviously had an impact on your life, right? So you'd obviously learn from what he was doing as an employee. He was going above and beyond to show that entrepreneurial trait. And then he took that leap. So how did that impact you when you started to take that, that first journey? Did you have a job or did you go straight into entrepreneurship? No, actually, when I finished university, uh, you know, when I graduated, I, I had a master's in electronic and electrical engineering. Mm -hmm. And this was just after the dot-com crash of 2000, right? I graduated in 2001. And I, I didn't know this at the time, but uh, I had a lot of friends who were going into non-engineering roles. And it turns out that companies like investment banks, they love engineers. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and they pay very well. So I was like, okay, this is a you know, good experience, something that I can start with. And so I, I was working in, in London for Credit Suisse First Boston as an investment banker. And that was my first job at a university. Wow. Yeah. How did you get on with that? How long did you last, I should ask? Yeah, so... Uh, well, I lasted a year, okay. uh, numerous reasons. One, when I joined, it was 2001, right? And we had 9-11. Mm. And so uh, the company went through two firing rounds. Now, I was very fortunate in the first one. I didn't get fired because they eliminated the weaker individuals, mm. and I wasn't one of them. But in the second round, even though I didn't get fired, I noticed that it wasn't based on how good you were. You could just be in the wrong seat at the wrong time. And that brought a lot of uncertainty to me. So I was already on the fence that, is this my future? Like, they don't value me. I just could be at the wrong desk and off you go. And at the same time, that's when my dad was starting his new company. So that kind of pushed me over the fence and said, you know, as a son, I should go quit this job, go back and support him to start his company. So that's really interesting, actually, because that's almost the opposite way around that most people find it. You found instability in employment, and actually you backed yourself and your father to be able to create certainty in that business, right? So 
you talk a little bit about that business? Yeah, you know, the, the diamond business, which is the business that my father has been involved in since I think it's the age of 17 or something. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> it's a very unique business. It's a very, I would say, um, close-knit business. You know, everyone knows everyone. It's very rare that you work with someone that you don't know, unless if you're buying from them. See, if you're buying from someone, in general, it might be okay. But otherwise, you're selling on credit, you're selling on trust, you're selling on reputation. And that only happens when you've known someone or have a reference on that person through someone else that you trust. And so, you know, I'll give you an example. People would do transactions worth millions of dollars on a handshake. There'd be no emails, no contracts, nothing. It's just your word and my word. Now, unfortunately, not everyone is honest. And so with a few incidents that have occurred over the last few decades, especially now insurance companies are saying, well, how do I know that Freddie took these goods on consignment? Where, do you have any proof? <laughs> and so we've had to start to introduce some paperwork. But yeah, it's um, like I guess many other businesses, it has its own unique ways of, of getting things done. Yeah, And then that's almost inherent of, a diamond right like a diamond only has value because we put value on it it's actually just a, you know something that's naturally occurring and has no value to anyone else outside humanity right that's an interesting sort of segue towards the the, the journey that you've had in your business so you've got the diamond business mm -hmm. but more latterly i mean we're sat here next to your your book you've taken a lot of what you've learned and you've brought it forward right into your yeah. sort of current business right you know, not just my current business, my, my life. Yeah. And I feel when you're an entrepreneur, there's this very gray area between work and your personal life. And I would say that's probably the case for everyone. Because if you're very unhappy at work, the chances are you're going to be unhappy in your personal life as well. It is going to come with you and vice versa. If you're very unhappy in your personal life, it's going to come with you to the office as well. So it's very important to get the you right. Because I'll tell you, I, there's many things I've been doing. Once I changed my lens and how I perceive things and how I address things, certain scenarios that used to perhaps cause me a lot of grief either don't affect me anymore, or now that I see it differently, I'm actually enjoying them. Mm. Yeah. Do you, so do you think that, you know, as part of um, the, the journey and what you've learned through your job, university, and your business, do you think that what you've come across is that you've, are inherently someone who likes to be almost a perfectionist. You like everything to be done. You're creative, but a perfectionist. And you're battling that mindset to be a more fluid or, or free person. And that's then what you've discovered. Other people have levitated towards you because they can see that you've been on that journey. And now you're able to say and write about the benefits and the impacts that it's had on your life. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. And I want to elaborate on your, what you just said. What is perfection? <laughs> you know, your definition and my definition could be so different. Mm -hmm. So when I'm pushing and thriving for perfection and putting in those countless extra hours, which is going to take me from, let's say, in what in my mind is 90% to 100%, you might actually think uh, it's not that important or you may not even like it. Uh, so what is perfection? And, and you know, when I, I, I love that word for that very reason 
because I'm always pushing people and saying when I'm coaching them that okay you want to be the you want to meet the perfect spouse you want to have the perfect job you want to have the perfect looks but what is perfect have you even defined it you know you, someone might look at Jennifer Lopez and say oh she's perfect you know someone might look at Hugh Jackman but other people might say no actually that's not my type I, I prefer you know so and so so what is perfect well, that's a very good question. That's quite an, a poignant question, really. It's incredibly subjective and it's different from person to person. I think you're completely right. And when you set goals, you need to understand what your success criteria is, you know? Yes. And it's so it's so true, right? Because some people will say, actually, do you know what? There was a, um, a study done recently where they asked people, how, m how many times your salary currently do you need, or your, whatever you make per year, do you need to be happy, quote unquote? And someone who was on $30,000 a year said, I need 90. Someone on $300,000 a year said I need 900. Someone on 30 million said I need 90 million. It's always three times. But really, what you're talking about, and you know, I've read your book and I think it comes across quite clearly, at least to me, you need to understand where your end goal is. Not necessarily that you're going to achieve it, tick it off, and then you can sit on a beach somewhere, but what are you working towards and what's that bigger impact? Which is something that I think is going to come through in this conversation very clearly. Because yeah. And let me add to that, Freddie. As a mountaineer, I, I always tell people, and especially the, the, the folks that I'm coaching, I say, what is your definition of success? What are the mountains you wish to climb? Because a lot of people say, ooh, I want to be rich. And I go, great, that's wonderful. But what does that mean? Is it rich in wealth? Is it rich in health? Is it rich in relationships, in personal growth, in spirituality, and so on and so on? And it, it could be so many different things. So it's very important to identify your summits which define your version of success. It's not what I think success is, because I'm 100% sure it's going to be different from your definition yeah. and everyone else's out there, because ultimately I need to feel successful. I don't need validation from someone else. And so once those mountains and those summits have been identified, then it's a matter of, okay, where am I now? And what are the steps I need to take in order to get up? And here's the thing. Once you do that, it becomes so much easier to say yes or no when you're at that inflection point, or not the inflection, that decision-making point, whether you should do something or not do it. You ask yourself, is it in line with any of my summits? Yes, let's go. If not, why am I wasting my time on this? Yeah. And, and what I love there is that was what I was going to move on to, and you mentioned mountaineering there. And I want to go back. If anyone has read anything about Sahil or, or knows Sahil, it will be that you have climbed a lot of mountains, actual physical mountains, never mind the metaphor. So I want to go back to, we've gone through your sort of early stage of life and, and business. Yeah. I want to go back to your first, I think it was your first marathon, the London Marathon, and then your journey to climb six of the tallest mountains since 2010. But yeah. I want to start with that marathon, because what I've read and spoken to you about is that that was the thing that you went, actually, I should push myself all the time physically and I don't know if I read it from your book, the Japanese philosophy of Masoji, which is do something impactful yeah. once a year that impacts you. Reading your book and listening to what you spoke about before, it's exactly what you've done. Yeah. But I'd love to hear how you went from you know, marathon. Why did you do marathons? Because you didn't do that before. And then why the mountains? The, the marathon is actually quite a funny story. As an investment banker, you sit a lot on your desk. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've... I, that doesn't give you much time to take care of your fitness and, and, and your well-being, let's just say that. You know, I, I just to give an example, there were many days when I'm having breakfast, lunch, and dinner on my desk. Okay? Mm. 
suddenly my clothes start getting tight. <laughs> and I'm thinking, this is not good because I'm going to have to replace my entire closet. And so one of the managing directors, I heard he was running a, a marathon, he was, you know, who sits just behind me. And I said, Rab, you know, how do you, how do you get in? Because there's so many people that apply for the London Marathon. It's like, unless if you're a super runner, it's a lottery system. And I had tried, um, but I, I, it didn't, I didn't succeed. Um, and, and the reason why I chose a marathon was because I said I need to do something extreme that's going to push me so that I can continue to wear the clothes that I'm wearing. And it'll just feel kind of great, right? You've, I think it's one of those bucket list things. Uh, run a marathon. Yeah, exactly. So I asked this, this, this managing de- director, Rab, and uh, I said, he said, well, you know, we've signed up with this charity. And as long as you can raise a certain amount of money, they will give you one of their tickets. Mm. I said, great. And what was nice was because he was running it as well, uh, as well as one other member of the team, it was a nice way to kind of push each other. Because when you're solo, you know, you might wake up and go, ah, I'm feeling tired today, or it's cold outside, or it's raining. But then you get that message, where are we meeting? Yeah. You know, how many kilometers are we running this weekend? Um, so that just pushed me. Um, accountability, right? There's accountability, yeah. absolutely. And and what I loved about the London Marathon was, because when you set yourself on this, these kind of big tasks, whether it's physical or, or metaphorical, you know, at some point, the body kind of gives in. And then the mind says, no, you can do it, you can do it. And at some point, even the mind can't fight for you anymore. And like that, there's like a bigger why that pushes you. And I have to say, I was at, at the point of thinking, is this even for me? Because at some point I was ah, like my legs, my it just it was I was hurting, really hurting, and the crowd, okay. the crowd, unbelievable. The supporters, they don't know who you are. They're standing there for hours. They're handing out orange slices, frutella, um, you know, water. They just they're, they're so giving. They're setting up bands that are playing music to entertain you. And they always tell you, write your name on your shirt. So out of the back, I hear someone saying, go, Silk, you're almost there. You can do it. I have no idea who this person is. But it just takes those few words when you're at your breaking point to say, I can push that a little bit more. And I have to say, if it weren't for the crowd, I, I don't know if I would have crossed that line. It's the power of community, isn't it? My brother-in-law and my, my father both run the London Marathon. And they both said, when you're starting off, you know, you've got your training up to maybe 15 miles. That's yeah. okay. Yeah. Then you've got, you know, the different sites you go past at the London Bridge or whatever it is. And you, that's okay. Get to sort of the early 20s and nothing can save you apart <laughs> from the crowd. Because they're constantly, it's constant, isn't it? Yeah. London Marathon. I've been able yeah. to see lots of people do it. And you really struggle to find them because they're, you know, 10 deep most of the way along the whole 26.2 mile route. Yes. You can't get to the front to see someone, but everyone there will cheer you on. And that power of community and, you know, you must have realized that connection between sitting at your desk thinking, my clothes are not fitting. My health and well-being are taking a bit of a knock here, but I'm doing well in my job. Let me do something which is going to be hold me accountable. It's going to make me fitter, but also it gives you that sense of community. So, is that why you then went? I'm going to do a mountain. Is that the link there? You know, it, I don't know if that triggered it. I'm sure there was some element there of, hey, I can actually do this, because many times we limit ourselves. I don't need anyone else to tell me I can't do it. I've already told myself I can't do it, right? And and so it's kind of one of those childhood dreams. You know, there's some friends who I grew up with and we all spoke about, 
and look, Everest has this lure to it. You know, it's, it's the tallest mountain and all that stuff. And although we weren't going to go to the top, it's a big commitment of time, energy, money, all sorts of things. We said, you know what, let's get to the base. And the base, by the way, is still five and a half. I mean, we went a little higher than the base, Kalapata. That's still five and a half thousand meters above sea level. So it's no joke. But uh, I said, I got to do this. And we hadn't had children at that time. So it's a little bit easier because uh, your responsibilities are fewer. And I told the missus, I said, listen, I really want to do this. And uh, one of my closest friends said, yeah, I'll join you. I said, I'd love to do it with you. And it's, you know, it's not her thing. It wasn't really my thing either. It was the first mountain. And uh, we both said, yeah, let's do it. So your first mountain was slightly higher than Everest Base Camp. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> How long did that take the train for? Uh, well, you know, I, living in Dubai where it's fairly flat, um, once we decided we, we trained, we were already training, but you need to train for specific muscle groups that are going to help you on the incline, decline, carrying a, a bag on your back, right? So we started training and I think it was a good six months that was very specific to mountain climbing. And although we don't have high altitude here, we did use... Uh, certain buildings and going up the emergency stairwell, you know, getting their permission and then with our backpacks and our boots on, we would go up and down the stairs. And that was, that helped us with the vertical ascent, yeah. you know, because you have to train for that. You can't just do it on flat ground. No, of course. That's incredible. And then, so then that was when you got the bug, you know, you must, you summited and thought, this is amazing. I need to do this again. You did it another, multiple more times, right? Yeah. I don't know what it is. There's, the, you know, they refer to this as the mountain bug that once you get it, you just want to keep going back. Mm. But what happened was, after that, we decided to have children. And so, you know, one child came. We were very blessed with a baby boy. And then 23 months later, we had a baby girl. And we didn't, because we wanted to enjoy that experience together, we didn't want to leave the children when they really need us. And so we waited until they got to a certain age before they, you know, we felt comfortable to leave them with the grandparents, for example, and, and both go off on another mountain. So 2010 was where we went a little higher than base camp on Everest. The next mountain was not till seven years later in 2017. And that only came about because I realized that I kept making up reasons for doing any of these big things. Oh, there's, there's work. There's this. There's that. There's always a reason, right? If you want to find a reason, there's always a reason. But when I started this whole break-free movement, which I didn't, call it that initially, but you know, it was my own internal journey, I realized, and I think there's a quote along these lines, the best time to plant a tree was two weeks ago or, or two years ago or something like that, and the next best time is now. And so I said, hey, I keep talking about the mountain, and I've constantly made excuses not to go. I'm going to pay and sign up. Because once you pay, you've committed. <laughs> okay. So that's how we started our, our, our mountain uh, climbing again. And 2017 was uh, Kilimanjaro. Wow, okay. That's definitely yeah. on my bucket list. So what I want to get into here is what is your appetite for risk? Because, you know, these are not easy feats, which is what probably lures you into them. Right? They're the benefit of health and well-being, but there must be more than that. So there is a risk factor there. They're obviously, they're fairly expensive. There's a risk factor. You've got to be accountable to your training. So my question is, what is your appetite for risk in, in, in your life in general, Emma, I guess? Well, risk again is such a it's so subjective and i mean even one of the mountains we climbed 
you know, uh, my wife and I have done all the mountains, pretty much all the mountains together. And there was one in Peru, Tropicalqui, which is the highest and toughest mountain we've done because it was also more technical. So it's a 6,354 meter peak. And, you know, sometimes you see in the movies, you got the two ice axes and you're going up the walls, you know. Yeah, so uh, the walls weren't at 90 degrees, but like between 60 and 70 degrees. So still very steep, right? And after that, my wife said, you know, maybe we shouldn't be doing these together. (laughs) It was that coupled with crevasses. We had to go over crevasses. But again, they were not that wide. So in my mind, it was very low risk. But in my wife's mind, even though you could easily step over or jump over it, you know, when she looks down, she goes, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. So for me, to answer your question, whenever I look at risk, I look at, which is the team that is coming up with me? How proficient are they? You know, how good is the equipment that we're using? What is the time of year that we're going and, and what are the weather conditions most likely to be? We can't predict it fully, but, you know, we have some vague idea. Um, who are the people that are coming up with me? You know, when you're climbing a wall and, and someone hasn't trained properly and all that, someone's mishap could cause a big problem for a lot of people. So there's so many factors that come into play. And all of those are checks. So when people think, oh, I'm just climbing a mountain and hey, who wants to come? Let's go. No, there's a lot that goes into it. A lot of meticulous planning and reassuring ourselves that is this the right team of climbers, guides, you know, the equipment. And so we go through this whole process and that planning helps to, in my mind, reduce the risk. There will always be risk. There's risk of driving a car here on Sheikhzaid Road. There's a risk of flying an airplane. But we all look at the data and we go, okay, how many people might have died or in this airline or car or whatever? And we take a, a call accordingly. Um, and I guess that's how I've, I've, I've approached it as well. And what about in your businesses? Are you someone that likes to you know, stay within what's, what's capable of your business? Or do you take business risks to be able to go and work with more people or, you know, launch a book, I guess, is a risk. What is your appetite to risk it in business? And does that translate across from your appetite to risk in you know, your mountaineering and, and sports lifestyle? So for me, when I'm looking at risk, I really look at it from the perspective of clutter. Like, is this going to add a lot of clutter in my life? Is it just good? You know, I don't mind pain if the, for short term, if there's longer term joy that's involved. But if the pain is just going to be very long and I can't kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel or it's something that's very different from what I do. Look, I'll give you an example. I invest in real estate. I own retail shops here in JLT, which I lease out. Why do I like them? Three to five year contracts. Um, They manage everything for the fit out and all. You know, they don't come complaining, oh, this light doesn't work. My AC is not working, blah, 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 right? Everything is on, on them. So now when an when a agent comes to me and says, oh, there's this amazing opportunity for an office or a home, I say, is it in JLT? Is it retail? If either of those questions are no, then I say, I don't even want to look at it. Because for me, that's risk. I don't know it that well. And I know it's going to add, even if it's a great opportunity, it's going to add a lot of clutter in my life. And I don't want to do that because I have other options in my life that I can take, which will have a lot less clutter. And so that's how I generally assess things. And the other part of risk is what, what is on the line? I'm always looking at what's the worst that can happen. 
it's so important to know what that is. So even in business, if I take a call, I, I buy something or I make an agreement with someone, what is the absolute worst case that can happen? And what will that mean in terms of loss, whether it's financial, reputation, time, you know, all the different losses that you may have? Am I okay to take that, knowing that this could go wrong? And what can I do to alleviate those? That's how I look at risk. I really like that. And something that you said when we were on um, DXP today together was that you've alluded to it there. When you're climbing a mountain, you want to remove as much clutter from your backpack as possible. Yeah. Otherwise, it makes it really hard to climb a mountain. You keep the essentials, but everything else comes off. This is where I want to segue towards your book and your sort of your your movement of decluttering your life and, and sort of finding that mindset, which is the key to mental focus and physical excellence, which is your words, not mine. Um, and I'd love to understand a bit about how you've started that movement. We've heard a bit about where it's come from, but how did you start it? And what's the real um, sort of passion project that you've got here? Well, you know, everything comes with a, with a, a fun story. So I'm 2016, it's the spring of 2016, and I'm on a retreat with six other entrepreneurs. And during this retreat, we all agreed to two words, and that was no judgment. Now, I, you know, this was part of a, an organization where someone told me, Sal, if you truly want to experience the benefits that this, 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 this organization can give you, you have to jump into the deep end. Don't dabble your feet in the shallow end. Just jump right in. So when they said no judgment, I literally... It's like this huge weight was just lifted off my shoulders. I didn't have to impress anyone. I didn't have to be someone I'm not. I could just be me. And so for the next four days, I experienced euphoric joy. I'm going to give you an example. We went to this restaurant where while you dine, they have entertainment. So these different acts that are happening while you eat. And it's a very lively restaurant, right? And they got singing and dancing and music and acrobats and magicians. Spectacular. The whole restaurant is just on fire. It's unbelievable. And right at the end, uh, and, and we're sitting next to the, ta the stage, by the way. I can literally put my arm on the stage. Right at the end, a group of dancers come on. And just as they're getting to the finale, uh, one of them looks at me and she says, come on. <laughs> now, the previous me, even though I love to dance, would have you know, looked the other way, gone back in my chair. Yeah. Uh, maybe picked up my phone and pretended I'm on a phone call or something. <laughs> but I said, no judgment. And so I went up. And I felt liberated. And here's the magic. At the end of the song, she jumped. And her expectation was, I have to catch her. Yeah. Now, fortunately, I did. But what really clicked in my mind was, here's someone who's just met me, doesn't know anything about me, had more trust in me than I had in myself. And so as I'm coming back to Dubai, I'm, I asked the air hostess, I said, can I please get something to write? And I, I wanted to note down some of these experiences because I wanted to share it with my wife. And then all of a sudden, I noticed tears just trickling down. And this was a very strange experience for me because prior to that, my, my code name between my friends was Iceman. 
you know, to see me cry was exceptionally rare. And here I am, and tears are just, they're just flowing, they're not stopping. I think it must have lasted for over half an hour. And I'm starting to ask myself, like, what's going on? This is not like me at all. And I quickly realized, Freddie, if this is who I was, and I experienced this euphoric joy, then who am I going back to? Because that's not me. This is me. And I, I realized that I've just been wearing a mask for so long, and I'm, not sure, I'm sure it's not just one mask, multiple masks. I've been wearing them for so long, I thought they became my identity. And it was only when I unmasked, because I didn't have to pretend to be anyone that I'm not, and I could just be me, I saw who I really was, the true self. And I loved that person. And so although we're coming back to a world which is filled with judgment, and I understood that maybe I can't live like that 100% of the time, but even if I live 50%, that's still a huge improvement over where I was. And so I started to identify things that were holding me down. You know, I love what you said earlier, you know, as a mountaineer, like you said, you, you're carrying weight. And if you carry weight that doesn't serve any function or purpose whatsoever, even one extra kilo over hours can feel like a lot. And so I started to identify all that excess weight that I was carrying with me everywhere I was going, whether it was mental, physical, relationship, or the physical environment. And I said, I've got to, I've got to remove this clutter in my life. Because that's holding me back from being my true self. I mean, it's amazing to hear you speak like that. And do you think that, I think that resonates with a lot of people listening now. Because I think so many people feel like, that is actually me. I've, I'm having to hide behind a mask right now because of a number of things. You know, the pressure of everyday life, credibility, validation. Everyone wants to be relevant. And you almost can build a persona out to become more relevant because that's what you you, you seek, you crave in this era of social media. You crave likes and people going, you're brilliant. Hmm. What do you think is something that you could offer people as, as, as advice to say, this is the easiest first step to take that clutter or that mask off? I love it. Great question. And I just want to say one thing before I answer that question. It's okay to wear a mask. As long as you know you're wearing it and it's situational, right? I just want to point, I just want to mention that because there are moments in time where you may, you may not want to be yourself uh, just because of the role that you have and there's a certain expectation or, you know, agreement around it. I didn't mention what you're alluding to there is protection, right? So you need to protect yourself. A mask can protect you as well as the yeah, from the real you. It could be. Uh, and, you know, how I behave in front of my friends and the language that I use may not be the same when I'm going for a parent-teacher conference, for example, <laughs> right? So that's what I mean. There just could be some, and it's a form of protection, I guess, yeah. So one is really identifying clutter, right? That's the first step. Because we could be carrying things with us, and we may be conscious of it, but we may also not know. And so the exercise that I share with people is... 
self-reflection on a daily basis. And you can do this in the evenings. I find it's nice to kind of just think about your day. All you need is a few minutes. It's not like, oh, this is going to take you half an hour. Right? You need two minutes, three minutes. Get a pen and paper and ask yourself every day, what elevated my energy levels? That's one question. And whatever that is, see if there's a way to do more of that. Right? And the second question is, what drained my energy levels today? And note it down. And the reason I'm saying write it down, because you do this day after day after day after day, and over time you start to see patterns. And you go, whoa, out of this, this entire month, for example, there were over 20 days when something specific drained my energy levels. Guess what? Clutter. There you go. Okay, he just identified it. If it's a one-off, we, we all have one-offs. I'm not even going to talk about those. But if it's repeating itself again and again and again, that's clutter. And another great way to find out, and this is a little bit more brave, um, is you ask someone. You know, you, you ask your spouse. For example, in my case, I might go to the missus and say, how can I be a better husband? I'll go to the, uh, the, the parents and say, how can I be a better son? I'll go to my best friend and say, how can I be a better friend? Go to the kids, how can I be a better father? And so forth. Now, there is a rule around this particular question. Because a lot of people, when they hear something, they might go, but, no, however, <laughs> and they start defending themselves. But what they're giving you, see, you're asking people that genuinely care about you. So what they're giving you is a gift. Freddie, what do you say when someone gives you a gift? That's all you have to say. Yeah, you're honest, that's the best thing, right? Yeah, you, you thank them. And then from the one, two, or very long laundry list of things that they gave you, you get to decide which one you want to pick and start making a change in. But if, for example, within your close circle, three or four of them said something similar, you might go, hey, you know what? If they're all saying it, it may be true. Let me reflect on it. And if you agree with it, you're not just basing it on what they said, but if you t generally agree with it, you say, okay, that's now clutter. Now let me get the tools to remove that clutter in my life. Mm, I really like it because I'm trying to sort of play devil's advocate in my mind here of different, different ways of thinking about it, right? Because journaling or writing down thoughts is, is, a, is a great thing, absolutely. Mm -hmm. People don't do it enough, but they're more than happy to track their business KPIs or what they're eating if they're going to lose weight <laughs> or, you know, they're more than happy to track those kind of things in the same way that, you know, you work with a lot of entrepreneurs where they resent the appraisal process. And you ask them, how often do you appraise your staff or do one-to-one? -one? And they say, once a year, once every six months if I have to. That is that feedback, the difference in feedback, it's things that you think you're going to hear bad or that don't raise, raise you up, you don't want to hear, but the things that you think are going to help towards your goal, i.e. you're tracking your calories because you want to have a six-pack for summer, you want to track that, you want to, I want to hear that I've done badly there because I can improve. So almost what I'm hearing there, and I completely agree with, is it's that mindset, mindset shift towards understanding all of your data, in, in personal data I mean, to then take that step forward and understand that clutter. And then the next step, I guess is the, the thing I'm going to ask you now, is what is the process and how difficult is it to remove that clutter? Because it sounds easy, but I'm sure it's not just to 
cut things off, move things away, because the data <laughs> that you've collected says that's not a great thing to be doing. Yeah, and, and I just want to touch upon what you said before I answer that question is, you mentioned feedback. Nobody likes feedback if it's not that great. <laughs> Nobody. Oh, yeah, Freddie, you know, your, your work over the last six months, well, and, you know, I'll come up with my list of things. How is that going to make you feel? Yeah, not great. Not great. Bad. Right. Yeah. And so what I, what I just shared with you is actually a concept that has been developed by my mentor and dear friend, Dr. Marshall Goldsmith. You know, he's one of the top leadership coaches in the world. And I'm very fortunate to be a part of his inner circle. And he refers to this as feed forward. Feedback is about the past. Can't change it. Can't do anything. But when I ask you, how can I be a better dot, 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 and I fill in whatever it is that I want to ask, could be how could I be a better listener? How could I be a better friend? Whatever that is, it's asking about the future. It's not going into the past. And guess what? I can be responsible for how the future turns out. And, and when you give me tips, it's not what I did in the past. So I'm probably going to be less defensive. And that's why I'm saying it's a gift that you've been given. It's something you can still change. Mm. So now that you've identified the clutter in your life, depending on which area of your life it's in, uh, you know, there, there are many tools. And... You know, we can go into specifics if there's a specific one you want to go a little more deep in. And I highlight many in the book, but I always tell people, because again, it goes back to the perfect or running all the scenarios through your head, is you can, you can operate in two zones. You can either operate in the zone of fear, you know, but what if, and it could go wrong, and what will they say, and you know, I might lose money, and there's all sorts of things, and that's living in the zone of fear. Or... You can live in the zone of love. I understand that this may be difficult. But once I get over this hump, this is the life I can lead. And so you're looking forward and, and imagining how life can be once you've overcome that flood in your life. And that usually is like a springboard and, and lunges you forward a little bit. Because most people don't take that first step. And they just sit back in their comfort zone. Oh, I like it here. Even though my life may not be that great, I know exactly how it's turning out for me daily, day, you know, on a daily basis. But when you overcome that fear, and like I said, one method is to look ahead and how is life going to look like when you overcome? You start learning. You start learning techniques. You, you go to YouTube or something online. You speak to your friends and you become vulnerable and you talk about it. You go to co you know, you get a coach, you, you, you know, read books. You will start to get answers. And then you take that first step. Because, you know, when I'm climbing a mountain, I don't look at the peak and go, oh, my God, that looks so far away. And, and you know, I, afterwards, I'll show you an actual picture where I put a little arrow. That's the mountain we're going to get to at the end of six days. And when you look at it, you go, um, no, <laughs> it's too far. But when you just focus on putting one step in front of the other, it's not that big. And then you kind of feel it out. How did that work out for me? And you're just constantly being aware. And then you say, okay, that's, that's, that's not so bad. And you put the next foot forward. And as you start to do that, the next thing you know, one step in front of the other, in front of the other, 
now you're at your summit. And you look back and you go, oh my goodness, wow. And so you went from comfort to fear. You overcame it through learning. And then you expand, right? You become a better version of yourself. And so over time, your comfort zone just keeps getting bigger and bigger because you realize, hey, it's not that bad. It's actually quite good. I think we're, I, I completely agree. I think we're very guilty. Everyone's probably very guilty of overestimating what we can do in the short term <laughs> and underestimating what we can do in the long term. And something I've heard you say before is that when you found your purpose, i.e. the, the, the break free movement, decluster movement, it causes you anxiety because looking to that furthest point of what you want to achieve and, and that's a purpose in life actually starts to bubble inside as, as pressure of, I don't think I can do that. So how do you, how do you overcome that? Obviously, you've mentioned there your first few steps. Is there something else you, you use to overcome that? So the, the, uh, the fear that I referred to, the anxiety that was actually the search of purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, because everyone's telling me, you have to know your purpose. You have to know your purpose. And I don't know mine. I'm searching. I'm asking questions. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm listening to all these great speakers and they're saying, these are ways you can find out. And it's just causing more and more grief. And then I happened to ask a couple of people who are close to me, do you know your purpose? And they did. And I thought that was the norm, but I later found out that it's actually not the norm. Most people (laughs) haven't quite figured it out. But that just brought more anxiety. And so... Luckily for me, I came across this amazing book, uh, The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. And in there, he quoted that everyone has, there's a universal life purpose for everyone. He said, it's for your soul to leave your body in a better state than it entered in. I was like, wow, that works for me. That works for me. And so my, then I just said, you just have to be what you feel not what someone else expects of you, what you feel is a good human being. And that just brought a lot of calm. But eventually, and to answer your question, I did find my my purpose, which is to spread the message of nonviolence. And it does sometimes feel like pressure because you're like, oh, I want to impact millions of people. And and I'm going to tell you something, and it's a bit, it was like, that last stage before my book was that point of no return when I pressed enter and after that it's, it's going to get published. Because sometimes I'm thinking so big, but then I realize, well, what if you only impacted one person and you changed the course of their life? Is that going to make you happy? And my answer was yes. And so that's how I took that additional burden off my chest. That I don't need to change the world. Because here's the thing, when you change one, that one can change many, those many can change the world, but it starts with one. So let me just focus on one at a time, and then let that ripple get further and further out. It's the same analogy of taking that one next step, isn't it? Just moving forward. Yeah. I, I love it, and I think I want to touch on here, you've already mentioned it before, but Hearing you talk, I can understand why you're in you're in this industry and in the, the coaching side of it because you're not preaching. You're talking about your own experiences and your own learnings, and you're helping on your own journey to find whatever it is that you're looking for. And you're, uh, as you said, one of Marshall Goldsworth's 
hundred coaches, which is quite an esteemed list. Like if anyone wants to have a look at the the hundred list, it's quite incredible. What's it like to be a part of that? What what do you learn from them? Do you feel not that you should, but do you feel imposter syndrome? What's it? What's that sort <laughs> of uh, you know? What's that atmosphere like? Yeah, when I, when I when I got uh, accepted. So the funny thing is, it's 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 because it's gone so successful. Um, it's become more than a hundred coaches, um, but it is still a few a small number in, on the grand scheme of things. And it's, it's a real privilege to be a part of this community. And when I first got accepted, because it's really by invitation only, is um, I'm like, wow, some of these names, it's like Alan Mulally, you know, he's a, he sits on the board of Google. He saved Ford Motor Company, you know, he's like wow. voted one of the top CEOs in the world. And like, um, yeah, Alan Mulally and Sahil Mehta, there's uh, a <laughs> big gap. But they... You go there and they just make everyone feel so welcome. Like, look, we're all at different stages of our lives. And, you know, he's, by the way, 70 plus. Now, when I get to that age, maybe I will have had an impact like him. And maybe greater, maybe not as great. But the point is I will have had impact. And he's, rather than feeling like an imposter, I look at him as an inspiration. And this community, what I love about it, and I get real, really inspired by all the other members, is Marshall started this through a course he attended where he was asked, who are the heroes in your life? And when he noted them down, they said, why are they a hero in your life? And he realized that all of them had given him information, had empowered him without charging, him, without charging anything. So that's exactly what he said. He goes, I need to be like my heroes. So I'm going to set up this community and I'm going to give away all my knowledge. Oh, wow. And the people who are inducted, they have to promise that they'll do the same. So it's really a way to pay back to society. Mm. And so when I'm with these other people, what I love is we all have a similar vision, which is to give back. It's not always about the money. Yes, we'll take from people who can afford it, but for those who can't, how can we impact them? Mm. Yeah, it's incredible. And I guess it leads quite nicely onto self-doubt I want to touch on because a lot of people that you know, see a lot of it in the <clears> entrepreneurial <throat> place or workplace, Self-doubt is something that creeps in. This is why we look for coaches, why we look for mentors and go onto YouTube and look for things to learn and listen to podcasts. Self-doubt is something that is within everyone. And we've touched on before the, the search for relevancy and, and credibility and that kind of thing. What causes you self-doubt or how do you overcome your own self-doubt if you experience it? No, no, okay. Uh, it's, it's like I talk about in the book. There's, there's always two wolves that are battling in your head. You know, one is not serving you and the other one is, uh, is serving you. And they're constantly fighting with each other. And what I find is, and as I mentioned in the book, is ultimately you have to feed the wolf that is serving you. The doubt is not serving you. And it comes up and it comes up all the time. Now, if I keep fueling that self-doubt, guess what? It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And that wolf is getting more powerful and stronger. Now, the other one, no matter how you know, uh, positive or energetic that other wolf may be, it's just not going to be able to compete. And so then I start feeding the other wolf. When I, when I become aware that this is what I'm doing, I'm like, okay, well, how will life look like when I get over this? And how can I overcome this self-doubt? Is there something I need to learn? Is there someone, I, some expert I need to be with? Uh, do I need to just try something? Because many times the over-analysis 
<laughs> you know, we've all always heard overanalysis leads to paralysis. That's exactly what happens. The self-doubt just prevents you from doing anything. And nothing gets done. And, and for those who said, yeah, I tried and it didn't work. Well, I met someone just now. And I have to share this story. This woman called Lucy um, in, the, in the Mara. She's from the Maasai tribe in Kenya. And I sit on the board of this charitable organization called Humans for Education, where we're enabling schools and families where they send their kids to empower them, not just give money, but empower them to, uh, with the goal to ensure that children get an education versus getting married off at a young age. I mean, there's some girls who are getting married off at 10 years old, for example. Now, this lady, Lucy, it took her 15 years to get the permission from the elders in the community to start the school. Wow. She could have started under her husband's name, but she wanted to make it a point. She's a female who are not seen with the same level of respect, unfortunately. But she said, no, I want to do this right way. I want to represent the female population of this tribe. I want to start a school. She started with, I think, five or seven students. Today, her school, thanks to the work that we've done with them and others, um, they have 134 students. And thanks to that, a lot of girls are now getting an education, not getting married off young, and they have a better future at life. But 15 years, she did not give up because she truly believed now, can you imagine what would have happened if she had self-doubt and she led that rule and overcome? No school, girls getting married off young. And that's not just her school. That impacted the entire community and all the surrounding communities. That's incredible, isn't it? Right. She did it. Amazing. She kept feeding the wolf that served her because she had a vision and she says, I'm going to fight for that vision because I truly believe that it's going to have an impact and it's going to change the society. Amazing. I, I, that part of the book is incredible. And for anyone who hasn't read this book, it's it's quite good, isn't it? It's, I, mean, I think it's a really, really good book. You know, I think it's incredible. I think it's really, really worth a read. And there's a lot of books out there now. It's difficult. It's a, it's a crowded marketplace. <laughs> there's a lot of thought that's gone into this. And there's a lot of things like the book, you know, I think sometimes People come up with analogies or whatever they're, they're talking about and the stories and it's not very well thought through but the stuff in this book is it's, it makes you stop i said to you today when i've come in here that you know i'm reading this in almost chapters chapter at a time leave it a week or so because i'm thinking about it so much that if i read it all it's almost too much for me so i'm, I'm reading a bit taking notes letting it settle in reading it again because so many people read you know, i've read 100 books this year how many of you remembered? How many of you implemented? This is one of those books that I think you need to actually read, understand, and implement because it will have massive ramifications on your life. I truly believe that. And that's not just because you're here, Sahil. <laughs> I would say that to someone else as well. I want to touch on, because we're very much in the present here, environment. So we're lucky enough to be recording in your office in JLT in Dubai, and you have had this designed incredibly. You know, and when I talk about earlier my definition of perfectionism, this is almost perfect right you've gone Thank through you. this with a fine tooth comb haven't you everything is absolutely perfect but for what you need and your uh, your team needs you know behind the camera right now the incredible view across dubai to the ocean you've also got a, a walking treadmill with a standing desk multiple cameras you know you've got um biophilia in here you've got art 
you've also got your wall to, to negate any self-doubt because of everything you've achieved or a lot of things you've achieved. How much does the environment that you're in dictate your performance? It's, I mean, I didn't realize this until I moved into this office. It has a huge impact. The, the office that I stayed in before this was a temporary office because we were fitting this out and a temporary, thanks to COVID, ended up being a, you know, a long temporary. Um, but when I'm in that space and I said, oh, I don't like this, but I'm not going to fix it because I'm just here for a short period of time. And, you know, some of them wouldn't have really cost that much money, but I just said, oh, it's not worth it. But that temporary environment resulted in a temporary mind for me. I just didn't think longer term. And that coupled with a temporary home that I was living in, temporary meaning I was renting, uh, and you know, living in Dubai previously, I had a three-year visa, which also felt temporary. So a lot of things were temporary. So subconsciously, my mind was just in temporary mode. And then once we moved into this new office, which belongs to me, Dubai now gives a 10-year visa. And the home, even though we're still renting, I said, I'm not going to treat it like a rented home, the one that we just moved into. And I spent good money in, in upgrading and you know, refurbishing almost the entire house. And people said, oh, it's a rented home. Why are you spending so much? No, I don't want it to feel like that. I want it to feel like a home and not a house. Because every time I'm there, I, I'm energized. Because it's, it's an extension of me and the rest of the family. Mm. And so I've noticed that people are more calm in this newer home. I've noticed people are happier. And even in the office, I've seen productivity going up because it creates an environment that allows you to thrive without distractions. And the same in your office, right? Because mm -hmm. this is an office that you've used what feels like almost minimalism. You know, it's a very Scandinavian style, if I may say. And it suits you in a way that it's calming in this side because this is where you're doing your coaching and you've got your, your meeting room next door. And then there's a sort of divide and you've got your another business, which is all linked, but it's a very different environment. It's still incredibly designed, but it's it allows for more hustle and bustle because it serves a different purpose. And that's yeah. something that you've obviously thought of, right? There's no straight lines in this office. It's all been ergonomically designed to suit the purpose that each room desires. Yeah, and I have to give credit to my coach who helped me with this because um, she could see that I was struggling with my mindset between the different work that I have. You know, I've got multiple companies mm -hmm. and she could see that struggle in me. And through the coaching, I realized that, hey, why don't I have two cabins for myself, each one creating an environment that's suitable for that role? And so that's exactly what I have. You know, in my office, I've got, I've got two cabins for myself. And people are like, really? You have two cabins? I said, yeah. And so when I shift from one to the other, my mindset shifts. And it's only you know, to put in perspective. It's like when you come home from work and then you change into, uh, you know, your casual clothes over your, perhaps your suit your mindset shifts. It's like when you wear your shorts and t-shirt to go to the gym, the mindset, mindset shifts. And so that's what I created in the office. It's different clothing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's super powerful. And you touched there on, on the gym as well. I know you're a very fit guy. I just mentioned here that you've got the, the walking machine underneath your desk, standing desk. What is it about, what, start with, what is your sort of go-to fitness? And then why is it important to you? Before I used to train a lot harder, actually. Um, it was all about oh, how much can I lift, how much can I push, how much can I pull, and it's like constantly getting excited about that number when it becomes five kilos heavier. And at some point, I said, "Why?" Because I was I was also getting more injuries as a result of that. 
And so I said, well, what's the fitness that I need to, to live my passion? I do mountaineering. And so there's certain muscle groups that I need to work and focus on those so that I can enjoy the mountain a lot more. Um, I go-kart, uh, and I, you know, I do races. So I, it's for endurance. And then I do a whole bunch of activities with the kids. And so I just want to be able to enjoy all these things. So I said, what's the level of fitness I need to do where I can continuously get stronger to enjoy the activities which I do? It's not about how you look. Like someone even asked me once, they said, hey, Sal, do you have a six-pack? And I said, no. And they said, really? I mean, you work out and you do fitness. I said, because that's not what I'm aiming for. How is that going to serve me on the mountain? Versus having stronger glutes and legs and shoulders and back to support the backpack and all that. So I'm focusing on the elements that help serve me in what I do. And so I do a combination of workouts, which are strength. I do, uh, I focus on yoga because that really, and yoga is not just the asanas, right? It's also the breath work, the meditation. I do all of that because that really helps to open my body up, stretches me, um, balances me. And then I play a few sports as well. I, I'm a big tennis player, so I, you know I play tennis. And and then every now and again, someone says, "Hey, you want to play this? You want to play that?" And I just join in for kicks and giggles. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Throw your hand to anything. I need to ask you a couple of questions that we've asked all of our guests so far. The first being a book recommendation. I mean, I spoke about it before, and I'll uh, I'll mention the book again. It's The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. It's uh, it was a real game changer for me uh, when I was really on my journey within. It answered or asked the right questions that helped me to answer uh, a lot of queries that I had. It's a beautiful book, a, a must read for anyone. Mm, a great one. And the second question I've got for you is, if you had a full free day, hmm. how would you spend it? I don't think it's too different from what I'm doing now. Uh, I, I, so I, I start the day the same way, which is uh, the morning is to myself. I think that's it's, it's what I really love. And uh, I'm grateful that I wake up before everyone else. So naturally, by the way, no alarm. Uh, and then spend time with the family once I'm done with myself. Uh, fitness, make sure fitness is in there. Uh, enjoy a nice breakfast. I don't like to rush. You know, I like to sit on the table and enjoy a nice breakfast. Um, get some work done. I feel that I'm more fresh in the mornings. And then I would have uh, enjoy lunch. And then in the afternoon, I would actually focus on giving back. That's the one big change that I would make. The afternoon, I would focus on how can I serve society? How can I serve the world in w whichever way I can? And then make sure that I'm back to enjoy time with the kids for dinner and pre-dinners. We can enjoy some time together. Yeah, so that's the one big shift I would make is yeah. really give the entire afternoon to serving others. It's a great answer. It's a, it's, a, it's a really nice answer. It's nice that it's not a shift really from what you're already doing. Yeah. It's something that is very achievable, which is perfect. Like we're always looking to get towards yeah. that, that perfect goal. Somehow, how can people find you? How can they buy the book and where can they find you online? Online is very easy. They just search my name. So that's S-A-A-H-I-L. And then the last name is M-E-H-T-A. So Sahil Mehta. And you can just go to www.sahilmehta.com. Uh, can easily be found on all the social media channels as well. Uh, and for people who like the book, there's, there's Amazon. There's, uh, you can get it on Audible. There's a, a, an audio version of the book as well. You do? You record it? 
I recorded it. Oh, yeah, nice. yeah. Because you know the the book has a lot of personal stories in there, and I didn't quite think another person could capture the stories with the same level of emotion or understanding. And I was actually pushed to use someone, and I said, no, you know, this is a personal book, and I I really feel the audience deserves to hear it from me. Fortunately, my English is good, so very good. <laughs> <laughs> they can understand. <laughs> Perfect. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you so much, and uh, all the best with all your endeavours. Yeah, thanks, Freddie. Perfect. Nice one. I think that went really well. Thank you for that. Yeah, that was very. Why is it so important to build resilience as an entrepreneur? Now, this is not a podcast where I'm going to tell you exactly what to do. Much less am I going to tell you the exact strategies to take. Because what I always talk about and what we you know, advocate at the Health Entrepreneur Club is that the best advice is to always understand yourself. Resilience is something that you know, is certainly necessary as an entrepreneur, probably as an entrepreneur more than a lot of other professions. And I'm not going to tell you how to do it. I'm going to tell you how I have done it and the, how I've overcome my, you know, my own insecurities around whatever we've been working on. And the reason for that is that you know, resilience is something that is so important to be able to bounce back and keep yourself on that trajectory or that plane of travel to the destination that you want to go to. And like I say, you've got to understand yourself. You've got to know what you desire, what you need and your body and your mind needs to be able to create that resilience because everyone is different and understanding your own data is the best way to move forward. So ultimately what we want to do is cultivate that growth mindset. We want to come away from that scarcity mindset where we think everyone's a threat there's a lot of competition, there's no opportunities, everyone else is better than me. And we want to grow that abundance or that growth mindset where everything that happens is an opportunity for us. You know, we are not in competition with people around us because we have something that's better. Our path is better, you know, our, our passions are stronger and therefore we can use the power around us. We can bounce off the issues with using our resilience and we can use that power around us to really harness and go forwards. So, I think it's really important to understand why we need resilience as an entrepreneur. And it's understanding that people like progression. You know, if you look at posts on social media, LinkedIn, for example, if you look at a body transformation, it's gonna have probably the most engagement and the most likes because people love progression. They love to see you're doing well. You know, in the early days of your business, when it starts to take off, or you take that step from employment to entrepreneurship, or you start a new business, whatever you're doing, you will see a lot of people rallying around you and they really love that progression you're making, that change. Wow, it's so exciting and fun. They're so supportive of you. But that will stop happening. And people want you to be in within touching distance, within the, a certain range that they expect you to be in. And they'll stop being as understanding. You know, they'll stop liking your progression as much. And that's one of the first things you see as an entrepreneur when someone jumps from employment to entrepreneurship and why they need to start building that resilience. Because they'll start thinking, why is no one supporting me as much? Why am I getting less likes on my social media? And it's because that initial phase of excitement and push to get you going, because everyone wanted you to make a change because it's exciting in their life for you to do something and then not have to take the risk. But they will then start, that will start to slow down. That's the first challenge you might face. Resilience is a string to your bow, you know, and it will put you above the competition. If you've got a stronger, um, resilience to, to change, to adversity, to you know, issues in your life, you will be above a lot of the competition because most people have not mastered resilience and they go up and down in their emotions, they let their emotions drive their decisions and it creates this sort of 
you know, this environment that, that is so difficult to thrive in. So, you know, I think it's really, really important. And this is one of the things people don't do that well. And I'm, I'm speaking from experience here. I'm, I'm still not amazing at, at showing my entrepreneurial resilience, but it's that journey that I'm on that I'm sharing with you. And it's remembering that your results should not be directly related to your self-doubt. So everyone has self-doubt. You know, in entrepreneurship, it's quite a lonely game. There's a lot of overwhelm, stress. A lot of the time, you know, there's not people to talk to. Even another entrepreneur, sometimes you can talk to them, but there's a lot of bravado. So sometimes you can't open up to them and, and let them know, you know, what about this? What about that? I'm struggling here because they don't want to know. They want to understand what you're doing really well and how they can partner with you or how they can benefit from you. So when you have these results and they're, and they're good or bad, try not to relate them straight to your self-doubt or, your, or even your self-esteem. So if you're doing well, obviously you want to say, oh, this was amazing. I did all this. You should. You should be proud of yourself. But think about where it's come from and why that's happened. Because it will actually be because something, you know, you've done something in the marketing or the product or the branding. Maybe you had some support. Try and learn from it rather than put it straight to, the, to your core and say that it was you. And in the same way, if you had a poor result, don't let, don't let it go to your self-doubt, your self-esteem. That's the resilience. It's, the, the, it's both ends but it's more powerful on the reverse side, where if you have a bad result, it's not directly affecting your self-doubt. And think of this in a corporate space, right? So in a corporate company, a big company, if you're, you're running a big project, if something goes over so slightly wrong and you have a poor result one day or one week, as long as it's not a you know, thing that you've actually completely broken yourself, it's not going to go to your self-esteem. You still know that you're a really good employee. You're doing an amazing job for this company. Just because there's something, something drops, it's not necessarily your fault. It's the entire team and there's things you could do to mitigate it. Hopefully you've installed a no-blame culture, so it's not even going to blame one person. It's more the opportunity to learn. And that's what we need to bring into entrepreneurship. There's so many things from the corporate world that we can bring into entrepreneurship. And obviously there's a lot in the entrepreneurship world we should put into corporates because you know, there's a lot to be, to be said for that. But that's a, a great thing to start with, right? Don't let results that you have uh, affect your self-doubt. And then if you, if you have that self-doubt, it does come and you're not able to stop it yet. You know, I always think about Alex Hormozzi. Alex Hormozzi said, outwork that self-doubt. He always says, be directionally correct. So when he says, outwork your self-doubt, don't think I'm going to sit here for three extra hours tonight and write up a plan or, you know, spend time doing something that is not efficient. We always want to be efficient. Um, we want to be making sure that we are talking about, you know, productivity, doing the right thing and being directionally correct. But you can outwork that self-doubt. If you think, I've had a bad week this week, you know, I, I can feel myself getting a bit of um, self-doubt. My resilience is, is being tested here. Outwork it. You know, look at, look at what you've, you've done. Look at what's gone wrong, potentially, if it has gone wrong. And try to understand where you can learn, where you can make changes and build that opportunity. Because everything that happens is a learning opportunity, for sure. Which is really, really something that you should always be thinking about. So... Why do you want to build your resilience? Well, the first one is become, to overcome challenges, right? You want to be able to bounce back as quickly as possible, which is really what we've been touching on up to now. If you can overcome challenges quicker than anyone else, you've got a competitive advantage that you'll be able to navigate the market before anyone else is able to bounce back from their, their, you know, their scarcity mindset or whatever they've been going through. And that's something that you have as an entrepreneur. You've probably got speed. In your, in your arsenal, you know, you can move really quickly, but the, the, the fleshy bit, you know, you as an entrepreneur, 
if you let your emotions take over and you know someone said that your product's not very good you've got a bad google review or you've had some complaints or even just your sales have dropped if you let that affect you too much and you haven't got the resilience to to, to wake up the next day and go right here we go let's, let's let's ramp it up and let's bounce back you begin that very slippery slope down to a place where it's very difficult to come back from you you drop behind the market you know you, you've let all the threats take over you and it becomes difficult the next reason you would want to build resilience i think is managing stress and uncertainty so like i said earlier you want to stay on that plane of growth think of it you know think of a boat going across a lake when a boat's going relatively slowly it's pushing a lot of water it's really difficult to get at that speed it's using a lot of fuel but at some point when it hits a certain speed it lifts up onto what they call a plane so a boat is built underneath so when it lifts up it's actually lifting almost half of the boat at the front out of the water much more efficient the fuel actually will go down the fuel efficiency will go up the fuel spend will go down it can increase speed it's much smoother flatter it's plain sailing from there and what you want to do is you want to stay on that plane of growth and we talk about this a lot because a lot of entrepreneurship is mindset and in health entrepreneur club a lot of what we talk about is mindset because if we can get your physical health right to be able to then have your consistent mindset We've got so many strategies we can put into your business. It is easy to grow your business if you, the fleshy part, the entrepreneur, has the right mindset. And to build that mindset, usually it helps to have a good base level of health and fitness. It, it literally is an easy strategy for us to, to help you through. We've been able to prove that from what we've been doing. So that consistency, that plane of growth, and that, you know, um, that, that power that you have when you start to get going, that momentum you have, when you start to get going, that snowball effect when you, you when you move through is definitely an incredible reason to work on your your resilience. Another one is learning and growth. So, you know, resilience, like I said earlier, is definitely part of resilience is being able to take an opportunity or, or a negative opportunity and turn it into a learning. So what I said there was a negative opportunity. So a negative is still an opportunity. You can see that I've ingrained that into myself. If something bad happens, I wake up and the numbers are down. I'm like, brilliant, okay, opportunity. What has, what's happened here that's made our numbers drop? Because I see that as something that I can change to make the next day the numbers be at the same level. And then I go, well, actually, I've just made an, an improvement there. I could make that, make that on top of another improvement and I've increased our sales. Well, how's that happened? Learning and growth. Learn from your failure. Every single failure you have is brilliant. You learn nothing from winning or you learn very little from winning. Um, but you learn a lot from failure. And you know, I don't have to tell you that because you know that. And most people that know anything about entrepreneurship, they learn, you know, they read any self-development books, they listen to any podcast, you know that the entrepreneurs who are at the top have failed the most and they failed the fastest and they, they've learned and implemented, which is crucial, they've implemented as quickly as possible. The best entrepreneurs that I know and spend time with are the ones that are able to fail but it doesn't affect their, their mindset at all. They then learn from it and implement the very next day or the very next week an improvement. And their business doesn't go down after that failure. It plateaus and goes up. It is incredible to see that, that bounce back. They stay on that plane of growth and they learn from their failure. The fourth one I wanna, I wanna give you, I've just given you four because there's obviously a million reasons to build your resilience. The fourth one is inspiring and leading others. Your resilience will benefit others, okay? so. Think about it in two, I'll break it into two areas. So the first one is it benefits people around you, like your family, you know, your friends and your team. Because if you've got the resilience, you know, you've got that 
that mental fortitude to be able to stay calm, stay collected and move yourself forward, that will trickle down to your people around you and they will see how, how good you are at stuff and how you're able to keep them on a, on a really um, steady ship and you're going in the right directions and things don't phase you. As long as you've got the directional correct, you're directionally correct and you're able to make changes so they don't think you're incompetent, having that resilience to grow and to learn and to take it forward will instill confidence in other people, which is it's quite incredible. And it's something that a lot of team leaders have, which allows people to follow behind them. You'll create a better leader out of yourself with good resilience, as long as you're using it in the correct way and you're learning from it. And on the second side of this, you know, inspiring and leading others, think about your entrepreneurial image or your personal brand. You know, if you're able to show resilience in your business, your business starts to grow, you're able to look after your health and fitness, your personal brand, you start posting on LinkedIn about it, you can, people can see nothing's phasing this person. You know, they're able to grow through adversity. Look at the people that did really well through COVID or through, you know, the 2008 recession and the crisis that followed. People that are able to show resilience through that and were able to plan and forecast the head, which, you know, everyone should have a forecast for almost every eventuality. You know, that's one of the main things we talk about when we go through our business strategies, which is how are you forecasting? I, I really don't want to know what, you've, what you're going to sell in the next six months if it's just based on hope. I want to know how you got there, how you forecasted it, how much of it is based on actual numbers and how much of it is literally being pulled out of what you think is going to happen. And then how many eventualities have you planned for? You know, it's so, so interesting to look at. Anyway, the point is that if you have that resilience, you can grow your personal grand, brand off of the back of it. Because people want to know what you're doing. They want to see how you're growing, but also how you are overcoming adversity, how you're getting around the corners that other people are not being able to see. So it grows, you know, your team, your family, the relationships there, but also your personal brand. A lot of it can come from your resilience. So how can you build your resilience? Well, the first thing I want to mention is um, we're a week into our Health Entrepreneur Club challenge, 21-day challenge. For, we've got 30 entrepreneurs, really exciting founders from around the world on this challenge. The first week's finished. And I think you may, you may have heard already, but the first week was physical. So there's a lot of things they had to do in there. You know, there was three challenges, but the first one was a difficult um, physical challenge you know for, for some people some people found it easy some people found it really difficult the point is that we were so incredibly impressed at the resilience of these entrepreneurs the first challenge they had to do on this three-week challenge that they thought was going to be nice nice and fun and you know it will help me grow my business and it, and it is it's fun it will help you grow your business but we wanted to just check the people straight away and show them you need to get over this barrier you know you need to show resilience to us straight away and actually to yourself and you know, everyone did it on the first two days. They were, they were taking videos of these challenges and they were, they were posting it everywhere and it was so impressive. And I think it's interesting that that was in a group environment. And sometimes that's what you need to help grow your resilience to start with. You know, on your own, it's more difficult. You're not quite sure what you're doing. But anyway, I digress. Um, how to build your resilience. So what you want to do is you want to cultivate that growth mindset, which is a common theme in this episode. And what you need to do to do this is to believe that your product or service adds value. So forget that it's going to, you know, make someone money or if it's a product that's going to do whatever it does, whatever your product does. You need to think about the value. So what I would do is get a piece of paper out, write your product or service at the top. And write in the, I don't, I don't, don't write down what it does. Write down the value it adds. 
So for example, if you make videos for a living, right, you, you, you've got a production company or you, I don't know, you do social media. You could say that people come to you because you add value that, that they're able to, you know, that you've got good quality and they're able to see their, their products on a video they can use social media. So it's marketing. Okay, that's what you do. The value you add depends on what they're coming to you for. So if they're coming to you because these people, they, you know, they're creating an investment deck and they want to have some, some footage of, of, their, um, of their products or their service, well, they've come to you because they think that to, by going to you, they are two, three, four, ten times more likely to gain that investment. Or, you know, if they come to you with a, with a product, they've chosen you because you've got great quality, consistency uh, and expertise. Well, they've come to you with a product. Is it because with that product, they believe with your content, you are twice as likely or you're going to increase your conversion by 50%. You know, what is the actual value that you are adding? Don't think about it as this is what I do. And this is why it's good. What are the people coming to you? What are their issues? And what is the value that you are actually adding specifically? And I think that will help you understand the value. You know, it will help you, uh, you know, stand up tall and go, you know, I can grow this out of this. I can grow this through this niche. This is what I do. This is what I'm really good at. This is why I stand above the competition. Build that resilience in your mindset. Um, develop a strong support system is another one. This is the most powerful one for me. So especially as I'm doing my work through resilience over the last couple of years, trying to understand how to learn from it, how to grow, how to create opportunities. Having a support system around me, friends, family, other entrepreneurs, that's the most powerful one to me because when you have that dip where you go, you know, I don't know what I'm doing today. This is really, I've had a bad result here. I don't know what to do. Or no one's like my LinkedIn post is a common one because we're so addicted to likes and to dopamine. Having that support system around you just to bounce you back, you know, like an old arcade game where the ball's dropping and there's these things that are bouncing you back into the arena. Think about that. Who can you have around you that's just not just going to go, you'll be okay. You know, like someone who's not connected and thinking on your level. Have a support system around you. Of, you know, for me, it's exciting founders. They know exactly the journey I'm on. I, I have people around me that are on the same level, people that are on a much, much higher level because every, everyone has different perspectives. And having that support system, to me, is the most powerful thing I can do to benefit my resilience because it affects my mindset. Next one for me you know, is self-care. This is something that I would never go without. So I, I'm always looking after my physical health. I'm always doing things to look after my mental health and I'm understanding my needs. I talk about this all the time, tracking what you... Tracking your, your body, tracking your, your needs in your, your mind and physically. So I'll track things like my mood, how I'm feeling, sleep, um, you know, if I've eaten a balanced diet. I don't go into the calories, that kind of thing. This, my tracking would take me, you know, 30 seconds just to tap a few, few buttons or write a few things down. But over time, I know exactly what I need. You know, I know exactly um, how to look after myself. I know exactly who to go to if I've got different issues and if I want to come over or, or talk about understanding your needs and looking after your body and your mind will grow your resilience and i can't say it enough understanding your own data is the first place you need to be looking or uncovering and the last little tip for building resilience is embracing failure and this is actually a lot harder than uh, than you think right so embracing failure as a way of learning um, whenever you fail think of it as an opportunity to go okay great what can i have done better because most people don't do that you know, and that will set you apart. And a tip for you to use that we were told by a great entrepreneur probably a year ago is to use um, thank you for your thoughts. So 
I've got a note on my phone, in my notes app, and whenever I have a negative thought, or you know, I have like a, my results drop, or I doubt myself, I'll open up the app called Thank You For Your Thoughts, and I'll write down, thank you for the thought, whatever the thought was, you know, whatever it is, close the app, and then maybe a few days later, maybe an hour later, at some point later, I'll go back to that, that notes app, open up the note, and I will write down the answer to that, that, that worry. So if it was, you know, um, I'm, I, I'm not sure if I'm confident enough, or I'm not sure if I should be speaking at this event today because there's 100 people and I don't feel like I'm imposter syndrome. I'm not sure if I should be the one on stage. Close the app, whatever, come back later. Still before the event, or you could do it after the event, you would say, this is why I've been asked to speak. This is why I'm going to be good at speak. This is why I've, this is what I've planned to say. This is why it's going to be great, you know, and you really drive up your motivation, but you don't do it in the moment. You don't try and battle with yourself when you're, when you're thinking negatively. Write it down, come back to it. And that is a fantastic tip. I've told that to so many entrepreneurs and I know the people that have told me about it and have told lots of people and there's a real community of people that are doing this now and it's so, so powerful. So I highly recommend. Um, so I hope you enjoyed this episode really around resilience and there's some really, really cool things you can start working on now, but it's all about taking a step, doing something, um, you know, trying to implement what you're hearing here um, and really understanding your data and trying to get in front of the right people, get a really supportive system and growing that abundance mindset. So thank you for listening and I hope to speak to you soon.